Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Basil Fakhary, CEO and co-founder of User Interviews. In this episode, we talked about what drove Basil to user research and why research participant recruiting specifically, how the team validated that user interviews was the biggest pain point, and then Basil shared their process of idea exploration and how they invalidated their ideas before reaching that aha moment. We also discussed the importance of marrying qualitative research and data analysis, how moving from a transactional to a subscription model affected churn, and we then dove into their pricing strategy and their decision to focus on expansion. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Basil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Basil is the CEO and co-founder of User Interviews, the fastest way to recruit research participants for product testing and UX research. Prior to user interviews, Basil started his career out in media and moved on to being an analyst before diving into entrepreneurship. So my first question for you, Basil, is what drove you to user research and why research participant recruiting specifically? Yeah, we took the scenic route here. So me and my co-founders actually started a different business. It was a terrible idea. It was a mobile app for hotel services. And we didn't actually talk to any users before we came up with the idea. So because of that, we weren't solving a user pain point and we grinded away on that for a year. And eventually we stuck our heads up and realized, hey, we should talk to customers because we're not getting the traction we wanted. When we started doing that, we found that there was really a core value problem with that initial product. So we were trying to figure out another idea to build and we got really addicted to user research or talking to customers or potential customers. And then we had the aha moment of, oh, this itself is something we're passionate about. There doesn't seem to be a good solution. Let's see if we can build a business around this. I like that you mentioned is the scenic route uh, around, but like from most uh, entrepreneurs, I think you end up speaking to is that it's, it pretty much feels like that's the way, that's the path. It's never normally really like what the idea you start out is what you end up uh, doing. And there's a lovely, there's no such thing as shortcuts because otherwise they would just be called the way. Like, why would anybody logically take a thing? But yeah, it's interesting uh, just hearing that from your perspective. So um, going in, trying to figure out pain points, like you realize, okay, like this was a pain trying to recruit and find participants. Maybe give us the origin stories there as well. Like, how did you say, okay, you had that hard moment. This is a pain point. Like, where do you start from there? Uh, 
Yeah. At this phase between when we found out that initial idea wasn't going to work and we didn't have a company, we were testing out a bunch of different ideas. And every time we would come up with an idea, we would run some experiment and we would do user research. So we had ideas like one was like Airbnb for storage. One was like fraud detection for people on Craigslist. So we had all of these ideas. We were always doing user research. When we came up with almost the, the meta idea, the, the company for user research, we did user research on user research. And then we basically found that all of these user researchers, or not all of them, but a lot of user researchers were posting on Craigslist to find participants for research studies. That was their best tool. So initially, before we even had a website, we would just go respond to those Craigslist posts. So there'd be a post that says, hey, I'm looking for people to do a focus group or to do a user research study with us and we'll pay them X dollars. So I would respond, me and my co-founders, we'd respond to that post and say, hey, we'll find these people for you if you pay us. We were very cheap back then because we didn't have a product, but we, and, and then they would say, yeah, of course, like we hate doing this. This is our least favorite part of our job. I'm a product manager, I'm a designer, and I'm spending all day posting on Craigslist and doing all these logistics. So we were able to get clients pretty quickly, even before we had, once again, a website, a product or anything. And then we started building the website, building up an audience, automating all the different workflows around that as we scaled up. Very nice. I love it. It's like the unbundling of Craigslist. Uh, again, let's yeah. I'm sure there is somewhere like this map of all the businesses that have been born out of like unbundling Craigslist. It's just unbelievable how one sort of site has given room to so many different ideas and businesses and seen as like a way as well an entry path thing you mentioned airbnb as well if i was recently reading the story i think airbnb as well started pretty much that way as well calling craigslist and using it as a way to to get early traction yeah we saw two like stereotypes for coming up with the business one was the unbundling of craigslist and the other was if you see people in a company hacking together a solution, like that's probably a good sign. And we saw that people were, they'd use Craigslist and they'd have an Excel where they were managing everything. And then they'd use some sort of calendar tool to schedule and some sort of mail merge. And they'd go get their gift cards from Visa or Amazon. And we were like, you're using six tools and Craigslist for this task. There's probably room there for someone to integrate them and just make it a better tool just overall. Make it work. Very cool. I want to talk a little bit about the tests first and just to understand like your methodology and how you, and I think it's always interesting uh, how you validate, because I think this can save you a lot of pain in the long run when it comes to churn and retention is really figuring out that early stage, how you go about and validate and trade really quickly. And you mentioned you came up with a couple of ideas. It was Airbnb for storage, if I remember correctly. And then like fraud detection, Craigslist, like how did you go about invalidating these ideas like how were you doing this initial research before diving in yeah so i think the airbnb for storage is a cool one or a fun one to talk about so that the idea there as i claimed is basically there's people with basements attics all the space and there's people looking for public storage which is a huge market and we thought hey maybe instead of going to a storage center you could say mm-hmm. i'll pay my neighbor 50 bucks to store my bike or i'll Um, put my boxes in this attic. So sharing economy trend, but for storage. And that market has a supply and a demand side, right? The supply side are the people with the extra space. The demand are the people that want to store stuff in that extra space. So we did an experiment for the supply side that actually came back positive. So our experiment was we would basically go on the Airbnb, message everybody we could and say, hey, we're coming up with a startup. We want to store, I think we said like a bike for $50, something like that. Would you be willing to do this? And we got 10% of people responded and said, oh yeah, we'd, we'd love to do that. So if 10% of Airbnb supplies responding off the get-go, you're like, that's a pretty good signal that there's supply there. And we basically did that until Airbnb kicked us off. That was the, the quantity we got to. So we felt actually pretty confident about the supply. 
through that experiment. For the demand side, we did more user research. We talked to a bunch of people that basically had used storage before, and we tried to figure out, hey, how did you choose choose the provider? That you-? And basically, we found that it came down to three things. Everyone was choosing based on price, based on convenience. So like, how close was it to you? And then based on security. And we had an aha moment that we didn't think we could win because convenience is going to be a toss up. Like it might be closer to you if it's someone in your neighborhood, but it's not going to be open 24 hours. You're going to need to coordinate with them. So we weren't sure we could beat inconvenience. We thought it would be pretty tough to say it was going to be more secure in someone's house than in a public storage facility. We just didn't think we could win there. And then pricing, we might've been able to win on, but the pricing was already low. I mean, at this point we were coming out of a failed startup. So we didn't want to go to another one unless we had really high conviction. conviction. Yeah. Yeah, And just based on that user research, we didn't have conviction. So that's why we decided not to go forward. Nice. It makes sense because at the surface, it does sound like an interesting concept and idea, but now that you lay off, so I can see those in my mind. The other thing I was also thinking in the sense of, would I actually trust my stuff at some other random person's uh, house? But uh, obviously not in the market at the moment for this. Not a great person to speak to. Cool. So this was like the methodology then trying to figure out and uh, understand is there supplies, there demand? Like you can see similarities now in the marketplace as well, I think that you're creating. But Let's talk about some of the ways I think where user research can uh, be helped at the very early stage as well. And some of the ways you've seen, like maybe yourself use it effectively or customers as well. So we talked about the example of idea exploration, just really trying to understand, okay, is there market here? Is there a need? How are you seeing like your customers typically use the platform? What are some of the projects there that they're working on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, definitely. And I would say initially when we started it, we thought the market would be more startups and more in that idea generation phase. As we've built it, we found that this is actually used in every part of the product lifecycle. And therefore, like the customers that use it the most often and use it regularly are actually larger companies. So so enterprises like Atlassian, Microsoft, Spotify, Colgate, large companies like that. And they use it really across the product lifecycle. At the very beginning, you just have an idea, right? So you're doing the type of research I just described for that Airbnb and storage idea. You're doing very generative research. You're just saying, how do you solve this pain point now? What matters to you? You're not even telling them what you're building. If you do decide you want to take the next step, then you might have different prototypes and you want to say, hey, which of these makes more sense? Which would you expect solves the solution we're solving for better? What's more intuitive? And then you might Uh, build something and you want to do usability testing to figure out, hey, go sign up. What do you expect these buttons to do? Does this workflow make sense for you? And then once the products, I think this is the most interesting part, we find that customers really want to be in constant conversation with their users to figure out, hey, who else in your team would get value about around this? What are the other tools you're using? Or hey, I want to talk to people that don't use us that chose a competitor. Why would you, why did you choose this competitor? Did you look at us? What's the difference? At the end of the day, I think of user research as a very broad type of information gathering. And I think it's very similar to your product analytics team. You can use it to answer all sorts of questions, but it's just a different tool for qualitative insights. Yeah, I love that you as well bring in the product analytics side cool. and looking for insights. And this is one of the big things like, I truly believe is that it's super important to have both the what's and the why. And I think coming from um, like heading up business intelligence at Hotjar, one of the things I noticed and found really strange there was in the early days of the company, like 
it was all about qualitative research, like almost no analytics uh, existed uh, or was like a focus. And I think it makes total sense in the sense that most of the time, the data you have at that point is not going to give you any really good signals and it can really lead you off in the wrong path, but you're really gathering the value from having those like five, 10, 15, 20 conversations uh, with customers. But then over time, you, know, you grow in sophistication, you have the numbers. But I think the magic happens when you have both working together, where you get the what with the why and uh, you're able to have like analytics working with user research. How are you seeing are you seeing any of your customers or yourselves internally like managing this process effectively and uh yeah this process being managing like analytics uh, combining the qual and quant yeah yeah we're starting to see this is a very nascent trend but one of my predictions on the space is that we're going to start having insights teams like broad insights teams that do merge quant and qual because they're both doing the same thing at the end of the day different people in the company have questions to make better decisions and there are different tools use to get the insights you need to make those decisions. So sometimes it's qual, sometimes it's quant. And I think they should be married pretty closely. I think, let's think about an A-B test, right? The the quant side is going to run the A-B test. It's going to let you know which one is better. But the qual side might let you know what is actually A and what is B, right? What choices are you going to put in front of them? And also let you know, okay, test B1, but why? Then we can go talk to people and understand. And that extra layer of insights, I think, is really what differentiates the top companies and the really top decision making. And the understanding. Yep. And I totally agree with you as well. I think this is an area that's coming to existence now. More and more of the really good companies understand the value of combining both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also I'm really bullish and hoping to see that more and more companies adopt this sort of product insights model, bringing together both teams to be able to inform decisions for the company and, and give insight. So let's talk a little bit about user interviews yourself specifically then. The company now, how old is it? Five, six years old? Yeah, about five years. About five years. And through that time, I'm pretty sure as well, you've had your fair share of challenges when it comes to general attention. I don't think there's any company that sort of skips the steps. And the graduating, what was maybe like a fundamental shift you saw in your churn and retention earlier? Was there something that you can pinpoint to you say, like when we changed this or when we did this, we saw like a, a drastic change or a good change? Yeah, definitely. So we've had a lot of success with changing our pricing model. So actually, initially, we weren't even subscription. We were all transactional revenue. So people would come pay for project. And when you're at that type of company, it's actually very difficult to even have a good grasp of churn. It's really hard to figure out what is the definition of churn, how do you, what counts as churn, what's the time frame you're looking at. We made a pretty big decision in 2019 to try to move to subscription. And we, we found that our user base, we're very open to that. And especially with larger companies, sometimes it made it even easier for them. So now we're almost 70% subscription revenue. We still have the transactional offering. So the first thing is get, get the get your monetization strategy in a way that you can actually measure it. And then the second, so once we're in subscription, the second major change we made is we were initially a seat-based pricing model, but then we switched to our pricing scaling up based on the number of sessions people do or the number of contacts they, they upload into the user interviews platform. And we did a pretty big research project to figure out what is the value metric when people think about user interviews how do they think about value and those two metrics line very well with what our customers thought so when your pricing model is tied to value then people feel like they are they're paying the right amount especially with us seat based and it makes sense because we had many different personas so we had a product manager versus a user researcher will do a very different amount of research so it didn't really make sense to charge the product manager the same amount but when you're tying it just to the, the value they're getting, then people are very comfortable with that. So that was huge uh, for us. Yeah, makes a, a lot of sense. And 
let's dive into this uh, in a little bit of detail because I think it is a very interesting topic and 100% as well, like aligning the uh, pricing model with the value metric that you deliver is an excellent way of framing the product right. It also opens up opportunities for expansion effectively. So the more your customer uses the product, the more successful they are, the more successful you are. I think it's beautiful. So the how did you go about doing this research? So you, you mentioned like there was, you're trying to figure out, okay, how should we price? What should the model look like? Talk us through the steps that you took uh, to get there. Yeah, I'll give a, a shout out to my VP of marketing, Aaron, who took the lead on a lot of this research, but we did a major survey both to existing customers, previous customers. We did a lot of qualitative research. The survey had the list of kind of like standard questions on really just being upfront and saying, how happy would you be if, or how disappointed would you be if user interviews wasn't there anymore? What is your value metric? Which of these price points like to you seems underpriced, regularly priced, overpriced? We took a very upfront approach with that survey. And then the qualitative research, like the more in-depth interviews really helped us understand the mind frames and the difference between different uh, segments. Yeah, sorry. Once we did that research then, like you mentioned, that really opened us up for expansion also. And when you think about net churn, you have two choices. You can really focus on gross churn or you can focus on expansion. Um, and we initially made the decision to put a lot of effort into expansion because the benefits of expansion compound in a way that can make it really overwhelm gross churn in, in a positive sense. So that was like another big focus and another thing that this pricing allowed us to do. It allowed you to, yeah. So you mentioned the interviews, you did them with uh, like current and past customers. Did you use panels at all for this as well? Yeah, so we would we dog food our own product all the time. So we we have one product called Research Hub, which manages your internal panel. So it allows you to upload your own users into basically like a CRM for research, and then automates the workflow of reaching out to them. We use Research Hub when we're talking to our own users. Our recruit product lets you recruit other users, and we use that also to find user researchers and product managers to do this research with. Nice, yeah, because I think when it comes to like pricing and packaging research there's an inherent bias in your current customer base uh, and then asking questions like pricing sensitivity, like what would you expect to pay? It, it's, it's super biased in my opinion when it comes to this because they've got already got a baseline, they have an expectation, but mm -hmm. speaking to a panel for something like this, I think is really mm -hmm. valuable because what you're really looking for is what is the market value of your product? Like somebody who's not a customer who's potentially evaluating something like your product or service, Mm -hmm. To them, what is it worth? What would they be paying for? And I think like for this, like Price Intelligently has some great uh, frameworks uh, in place as well. I similarly as I worked with them at Hotjar for their, their pricing and packaging we did then. I, I don't think they do much on the internal customer side of things, but I think you need to have everything to get a full picture to have an understanding. But uh, mm -hmm. this is one use case, I think, for the panel side of things. It is really powerful in getting a sense of like how the market sees the product uh, itself. Definitely. Yeah. And we, we relied on the price intelligently content a lot to help come up with our strategy. So we think they have great content. And I agree. I think when talking to existing users, it's value. They'll be pretty honest around what the value metric is. So is it seats or sessions or contacts, but the actual like number that there is definitely an inherent bias there. Just need to keep that in the back of your mind. But this was also a great example of marrying the analytics and qual because we did a lot of segmenting of our users. Who's using us this much, which are our biggest customers. And how do we think about the different segments? We needed that analytics to then be an input into what research we did. Yeah. For sure. I think this is uh, another good point, as you mentioned, we're combining the qualitative and quantitative data point. There's a few 
uh, great examples, I think, where this really uh, makes a big impact when it comes to research. But so you mentioned something else as well, though, that uh, you decided to give a focus on expansion revenue. And obviously, changing to this pricing model helped you unlock opportunity for that. What does that mean? Like, how did you go about focusing on expansion? What was like the game plan? How did you expand the accounts? Yeah. So the general insight there is that expansion compounds in a way contraction doesn't. So let's say you have one company that just has 0% churn across the whole board. And then you have another company that at day one, you just split the revenue randomly 50%, 50%. And the first half expands 1% a month and the second half contracts 1% a month. That second company will end up a lot bigger than the first company. So the benefits of having any segments expanding are very strong. And they, once again, they compound and they grow over time. So because of that, we wanted to make sure that we had a strong expansion motion. Really, once again, we did a lot of segmentation. We figured out, okay, this part of the market, these types of customers have the highest potential for expansion. And then we did a lot of stuff around. We split up our sales team and had people focus specifically on expansion. That became a high-level company OKR, and we were able to be successful with that. And so... What it sounds like, and it makes perfect sense as well, in the sense that specific segments are going to be better and more ripe for expansion. And uh, mm-hmm. typically, you see this if you split your business like between SMB, mid market, and enterprise. Like you would see mm-hmm. expansion coming from mid market enterprise, and predominantly like the churn being dragged down by SMBs. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming this is the case in your side as well. Then. Mm-hmm. From there, like you mentioned, sales would split their efforts. So instead of going after like new business, you started splitting that up and seeing, okay, how can we expand and grow the existing business? Correct. Do you see like any timeframes that things are working? Like how did you understand when was right for the sales team to go back to their customer? How did you set that up? How did you automate parts of it? Like, Yeah. A lot of this really comes back to the pricing change we did where it was now based on sessions. So we were able to see just, oh, people are pacing ahead of the sessions that they bought. We're seeing an acceleration in sessions. So we knew they were getting value from us. And we, we, it was, they've always been very easy conversations where we're saying, hey, are you expected to use this much? You're using this many sessions. Maybe your team grew. Maybe just the product's so much better than you expected that you want to do more research. That, that's the story I like to tell. And because of that, it, it's, it's always an easy conversation and people are usually aligned. And once again, this really strongly comes back to the having the right pricing model. Because if it was based on seats, for instance, and they're like, oh, this designer joined for one session, like we really need to pay for a whole seat for this. We, we don't want to add that friction and be fighting our clients that way. Yeah. And then end up seeing like churn for the wrong reasons. And I think exactly seats, it's a weird one because in some models it makes sense, but in other models, like you really restrict the virality of the product, the number of people that have access to use. And I definitely like finding more on what is the end value that they get, because it's not the number of people sitting in the product. It's more, what are they getting out of that product? That's the value. And if you can charge for that, it's like the best way forward. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. Uh, mm-hmm. You join a new company and churn retention is not doing great at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Basil, like, you really need to turn things around. You're in charge. We have 90 days. So mm-hmm. it's a short time window. But there's one caveat that you're not going to choose something that you've done in the past. So you just need to like top of your mind, something you've seen that's worked, pick one strategy and try to reduce churn at a company. What would it be? Uh, what would you run with? Yeah. No user research. Okay. You can't do anything. I think probably depending on how you measure turn, I think that a lot of companies um, underweight the value of trying to reactivate people. And I think like running campaigns around people who have 
paid for you before and then churned and trying to get them back in. If you measure, once again, it depends how you measure churn, but if that counts as kind of reactivation or expansion, I think there hasn't been as much effort. There's not as much content around doing that. And that's a good way to get a quick boost because some of those people will come back that at least at some point they had a need for your product. Um, yeah. Interesting. What's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? There's a pricing thing. There's also just how like insidious churn is and how much it should be a focus from day one. I think a lot of it, and maybe this is just the way it has to be, but when you first start a company, it's just like acquisition and you don't really think about engagement. You don't think about, or most founders, especially first time founders, you get addicted to like the new logos. You're like, Oh, I just got this logo and you keep the logos up on your website, even if they haven't used you in six months, you just want to keep saying you have these new logos. And I think if I was going to start a company again, I, I think I might even go slower on the acquisition and focus on the initial customers, just making sure the engagement was super, super high and then focusing on scaling. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. This is one of those things. And I'm also not sure I'm split on if it's like a necessary evil in the beginning, like you, because in one aspect, if you're just really focusing acquisition, you're maximizing uh -huh. the learning you have from a larger pool of people and uh, it has its benefits. But on the other side, like not focusing early enough, you normally get this oh shit moments in the company when people realize and they clock, okay, if they do a little bit of maths and see if we continue in our current trajectory, we're going to hit a ceiling at some point and uh, that's not the ceiling we had hoped for the business. So the earlier you get started uh, on it, like, it also compounds over time and it will actually accelerate the way you can grow. So it's a bit of a, it's still a catch 22 in my mind on this one. Nice. And there's also like, I see we coming up now to the end of the, the show. Is there any like sort of final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Like, is anything special they should be aware of like on your part or anything they should keep up to speed with? No, I think maybe last thought on turn that I think valuable is to think through when does the churn happen? Because I think a lot of companies, a lot of the churn and we're like, this might happen in the first month, the first couple months. I think if that's okay, like if you have a ton of churn in the first three months, but then after that, you're highly retentive. I think that is okay because you think of those first three months as still part of the acquisition and part of the, the life cycle, the, the sales cycle. And then, so really getting to a point where it's retentive, even if it's a little bit later is fine. And I think customers should just have, or I think People should just have the the knowledge of how their kind of like customer journeys are to know that. Yeah, that, uh, that is yeah, an interesting. For... It's an interesting point that is actually because you reminded me of another episode. I think was Typeform we were speaking to at the time, and it also depends. Like when your product has different use cases and different personas, like you can see big differences in the retention rates. And so Typeform was an interesting one where they had two groups of users, like one who was just coming to create a form one off. And that's what they needed to do at that given time. So they would sign up for the service, but then end up churning like a month or two months later because they'd done the job. Like the job to be done was create one server and they did it. And they get it. And maybe I could see some, draw some parallels in your case. Like they come for one specific, they sign up for a couple of months and then they churn because they, that project's finished. Actually, Hotshot was very similar to this as well, thinking back. But then like you do have obviously the segment of users that are really like the ones who are coming in the long term. And uh, that's typically sometimes all how you can see. But this you understand like from user interviews, from diving, like the data will tell you one thing, like you're seeing yeah. like a 60% whatever drop off month two, but knowing why uh, that is, I think that's uh, where you need to dive into the weeds and speak to customers and understand that uh, for sure. And it is uh, some of it is acceptable because it, it pours fuel on the fire to grow faster, to get more of those that are going to keep you uh, uh, going longer and staying after that three months. Yeah, exactly. 
Nice. And how can uh, the listeners keep up to speed with your work? And uh... Yeah, definitely. We we have a lot of content. We have an active blog. So if you go to userinterviews.com, and we have a lot of resources on how to do user research for different questions, how to set up user research teams, what tools to use. I'd recommend just going to userinterviews.com if you have any questions about qualitative insights or user research in any way. Very cool. But yeah, we'll definitely add those all to the show notes as well. And uh, Vasil, thanks so much for joining today. It's been a pleasure hosting the show and I wish you best of luck going forward. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm, and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.